0: let me just say, uh, first of all, how much I want to um, give thanks to God for just the mobilization of our church yesterday in ministry. What a wonderful opportunity to uh, celebrate Christ and to present Christ to so many different uh, ladies who were invited as part of the Christmas tea. And we're just so grateful to see how the Lord... um, put together the, the provision for the speaker to come and all the different ways in which she was uh, connected to our church, and, and uh, for the great team of volunteers that have just uh, given so much time and preparation and planning, and uh, just a beautiful thing, all the different hostesses who invited so many people and decorated their tables, and for the women's ministry team, we just give thanks and praise to God, and I thank God for all of you who are part of that event. Uh, also, if you're here today and you uh, were invited to that yesterday, we would love to give you some... Uh, gifts and just to tell you some further materials to help you explore who christ is one of them is a little booklet it's not a very long read called a very different christmas what are you hoping for this year by rico tice a very interesting compelling book introducing to us just what is the good news that is associated with jesus christ and knowing him and then another book we have a free for you right out here on the table in the uh foyer is the Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, and so we welcome you to take those and any of the other materials there by the door, uh, please help yourself, and if you'd like to share those with someone, please do. Also we want to pray for David, he's uh, under the weather, and we want to thank the Lord for the backup team that uh, uh, changed things around, we appreciate um, their assistance this morning. Uh, let's bow in prayer, and then we're going to look again at Matthew chapter two. Our Father, we are thankful that it never um, we never come out, uh, never run out of reasons to celebrate Christ's first coming. We realize that it can become quite familiar to us, but Lord, the ramifications, the fruit of Christ's coming, the treasures that are, can be gained and enjoyed because of Christ coming, Lord, are things that ought to draw our hearts into humble, sincere, profound worship. And so we pray that that would be the effect today and pray that you might open up your word to us, give us, we pray, hearts and minds that can understand it and begin to apply it, we pray, by your Holy Spirit to each individual person who is here. For the glory of your name, we pray these things. Amen. We're reading now from Matthew chapter 2. If you'll find your way there, Matthew, second chapter. We looked at this last week. We're going to continue it this week. Uh, Matthew is a gospel that was aimed primarily at a Jewish audience. And so he is selecting important details of Jesus' birth uh, to emphasize. Jesus as the Messiah. Verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard about, this is Herod the Great, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That was was taken from Micah chapter 5. And then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went went their way. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. Now, during this Advent season, we are reflecting for these next four weeks on this phrase found in Matthew chapter 2, that the Magi, these stargazers, the Magi, these astrologers, you could say, did not worship the star. That would have been a very logical thing for them to do, and many people still do such. But the text of Scripture says they worshipped Jesus. They worshipped the King of the Jews. They worshipped Emmanuel, the Son of God. It goes on to say there in Matthew's Gospel, one and one, chapters 1 and 2. And their worship, we note here in the text, included a noteworthy response on their part. Upon arriving there at the house where the infant Jesus was, they presented to him expensive gifts in keeping with the fact that this is a royal infant. Now these three gifts presented to Jesus weren't the type of gifts that were normally uh, presented to ordinary citizens. They were costly. Uh, Even in our own culture, you give gold, man, people look at you like, wow, that's a nice gift. As we say in our house, that's no five-centre. You know, that's a nice gift. And so presenting these gifts indicated that these were, in a sense, representative of the most expensive or precious commodities of that day. By bowing before Jesus, and presenting to him these expensive gifts, these magi made a very important choice. They chose not to worship worldly wealth, but they chose to worship Jesus. I want us to stop and ponder that for a second. They chose not to worship worldly wealth, but they chose to worship jesus instead you know we are living now in the 21st century we are living in a very materialistic society we face day after day the ongoing temptation to worship wealth most of us are not conscious of the fact, but it is true. If you ever go out of this culture, if you go in certain places and pockets of our culture and society, you will find that compared to the rest of the world, we are rich. Very rich. And as such, one of the temptations that we find living in a culture where we are so well off and where there is such a, a, a strong message that is communicated in so many different ways about the importance of gaining more and more of the material goods of this world that some people have contracted what an analyst i remember reading about wrote an article about this years ago he says we have contracted a disease of the heart called affluenza not influenza the flu but affluenza what do we mean by that This writer went on to explain, it's a disease of the soul that exhibits a compelling urge to accumulate an abundance of material possessions. And this results, for some people, in what has been called these high-grade fevers that are accompanied by chills of worry and anxiety because they're already concerned about the payment of their credit card, which is uh, maxed out. They're concerned about the fact that they are not going to be able to pay their bills because they've overextended themselves. It also is characterized by chronic infection of the heart, if you will, of indebtedness. They're deep in debt. They're way over their heads. And there's an unquenchable thirst for more i've got to have more i'm not satisfied with what i have look what they have look what they're able to enjoy and so these are the kinds of symptoms of a heart that is caught up in affluenza and as i read the scriptures it seems to me that there's much to be found in the pages of god's word that speaks to this issue of worshiping wealth instead of worshiping God. And interestingly enough, Jesus devoted a large portion of His teaching while He was here on earth to the issue of money. As a matter of fact, I read the statistic the other day that uh, 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus taught were concerned with the theme of money and possessions. Isn't that interesting? And that the, His teaching contains more um, instruction regarding money than heaven and hell combined it's a topic that we need to continually hear about and so this morning i want to just make two primary points in our consideration this morning of this very serious issue of the dangers of worshiping wealth instead of worshiping god and that is number one worship the worship of god excludes the worship of wealth it excludes it The reason I say that is because the idol of money so easily can seduce our hearts by promising to us what it can't deliver for us it promises security It promises significance you can become a significant person if you will only get X amount of dollars if you will only be able to live this kind of lifestyle if you can only drive this car if you can only experience this trip but in the end of course the idol of money all those promises are really empty because the riches of the world let's be honest they don't last They aren't permanent. And we're warned in the Scriptures time and time again that every bit of material wealth that we accumulate in this world, in our lifetime, is going to be left behind when we die. The first verse I want to consider this morning in this theme is Proverbs 23. I don't know if you make your way there quickly, but Proverbs 23. Very helpful insight here. In gaining perspective on this area that, by the way, Jesus said, beware of greed. Isn't it interesting that Jesus had to warn us about that sin, whereas so many other sins are so obvious and blatant, we know when we're sinning in those areas. But somehow in greed, that's an area of our heart that we're just oblivious to. Nobody ever admits, you know, I struggle with greed. People will struggle with porn, they'll struggle with food, they'll struggle with... Whatever in all these different areas of their life. But very few people will ever admit I got an issue with greed. Well, listen what again. How do we understand the power and the seductive power of money as an idol and the fact that it cannot deliver? He says in Proverbs 23, four and five, verses four and five, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. Why is that? When you set your eyes on it, it's gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings i read the book recently about the orville and wilbur wright who invented the first mechanized airplane people had not been able to fly like birds and go off into the highest reaches of the skies and be liberated well this he says listen your wealth is going to take off like a bird and you have no control You're going to lose control of it at some point. He says, Like an eagle that flies toward the heavens, wealth makes itself wings. Interesting also, Proverbs 27, verse 24, Riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. Again, I say, Everything that you accumulate in your life will eventually belong to someone else. At this stage in life, I'm very aware of that. Kids, would you please take your stuff out of here? We're trying to clean our house out, you know. Um, My parents were begging me to do that years ago themselves. And then we received all the stuff that our parents left behind, or, or a good portion of it, and realized, we don't need all this stuff. But the government will eventually take its portion of it, won't it? And the hyperinflation can easily erode the buying power of it. Just go to Argentina and you'll see the the inflation rate of hundreds of thousand percentage points. Your money's worthless there. The price of stock will fluctuate, going up and down, and worth a lot now and worth hardly little, very much less later on. And those... That you've listed in your will eventually will inherit everything, all of your assets when you die. So it very much makes sense that First Timothy chapter six would say, We have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. So this is why, again, over and over we're warned in the Bible that we are fools. If we put our trust in worldly wealth and not in God, it is foolish to pursue only worldly wealth. Proverbs 18, verse 11. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. That's his secure place, his wealth. That's where he's got the walls that protect him from whatever he's afraid of. And like a high wall, in his own imagination, he thinks that's going to be his security. But of course, materialism and the worship of wealth dupes us into believing that if we accumulate sufficient resources, we'll be able to weather any storm in life. We'll be able to handle any situation that we may run into. But the, for, but the fortress walls of money, if you will, of this idol of money, gives us really a false sense of security. Because material wealth cannot protect you from the worst enemy of humanity. Death. You see, death can and death will eventually penetrate every fortress wall that you may have built around your life, as you've tried to accumulate and amass your wealth around you. Jesus certainly picked up on that theme in his ministry while he was here on earth when he addressed the issue and it sort of was presented to him by someone who came and sought him out urgently in Luke chapter 12. If you want to make your way there, you'll notice an interesting passage of scripture when Jesus is... Dealing with an inquirer who obviously is interested in the pursuit of material wealth. Here we have a man who is demanding Jesus to get involved in one of these knockdown, drag out, knockdown big fights and battles between members of the family over inheritance. It can get quite ugly, it can get quite um, tragic, and all of the ramifications of that. And so he's demanding that Jesus settle an issue pertaining to the dividing of his brother's inheritance he thinks he deserves a bigger portion of that inheritance now again in that culture the firstborn got the vast majority of the inheritance and so what's going on with this man who comes to jesus well his heart is is held in the grip of greed and he can't see very clearly what the real issues are but he thinks he, he can get jesus to help him Resolve things the way he thinks makes better sense. And so Jesus responded to this man's appeal by telling him a parable. And in this parable, he warns against the attitude of being so preoccupied with amassing wealth while neglecting at the same time in one's life any kind of pursuit of amassing spiritual wealth toward God. So Jesus tells about the story of a rich, successful man, the kind of man that most of us dream about, or the woman that we dream about, the person who, on Shark Tank, that uh, come up with some clever idea, next thing you know, they're multi-multi-millionaires. And so this particular wealthy businessman chose, in the midst of all of his prosperity and things are going so well, and the markets are doing well, and the investment is now bringing all this this, uh, increase into his coffers and so he invests all of his energies at that point to hoarding up more and more of this wealth that is now just pouring into his pockets and so it's all being saved up for him he's consumed with himself and so his intent and his plan in his life is basically i'm going to gather up more and more of this it's all for me and he says i'm basically going to live a self-indulgent lifestyle i'm not going to have any worries i'm just going to eat i'm just going to drink i'm just going to be merry and that's what my life will be living enjoying life on my terms now look at verse 20 of luke chapter 12 and you'll see jesus just a really strong point he makes here as he as he brings this parable, this story, to a conclusion to, in order to make a point. Jesus says to this person who's caught up in greed, You fool! This very night, the man who was trying to invest all that money more and more into himself, and that's all he was pursuing was, gaining wealth so he could just live a, a comfortable lifestyle full of pleasure and self-indulgence, he says, This very night, your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? Who will own all of your amassed wealth that you're now going to leave behind when you die? He says you can't hold on to it. And then he says this, Jesus says, verse 21, So is the man who lays up treasure for himself it's for himself the laying up of treasure was for himself and is not rich toward God so both this wealthy man and the man who was coveting his brother's portion of the inheritance they're ensnared in this trap of greed they probably didn't understand that at the time they were oblivious to it they did not understand how they were ensnared and trapped and enslaved if you as it were but they played the part of a fool by allowing their concern for the riches of this world to eclipse the far more important concern they should have had for their own souls so is it any wonder that jesus asked the question in the gospels listen what good is it if you gain For yourself, a vast amount of earthly treasure in this life, but you spend eternity tormented in hell, cut off from God. What's the good of that? What are you going to gain? You see, money will not do you any good if you're in the misery of hell. You can have a very thick portfolio of all kinds of investments it's not going to do you any good there you could say well i have got a rather large savings account that i've been accumulating all these years not going to do you any good you say well i've got prime real estate holdings you know it's worth quite a bit market keeps going up it's not going to be of any benefit to anybody who's in misery and hell so jesus is aware of this reality and we are either worshiping god or we worship money the two are not something you can worship equally at the same time that's why jesus said john in matthew chapter 6 you cannot serve god and money the word he used there was mammon which is an aramaic word basically the same word for money and what he's saying there is that you have to have a master you either serve one or you serve the other. And when money is our master, our heart turns towards self. And self becomes the master. We trust in ourselves, we become self-reliant. We assume that we can live life in such a way that we become self-sufficient. It's a lie, you get duped, you get sort of tricked into all that thinking. It does its best in many ways. Money, as being a master, it draws us away from trusting God. It draws us away from being confident in the one who created everything and the one who really owns everything. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it belongs to Him. It's no wonder that God warned the children of Israel in deuteronomy chapter 8 he said that when you are well off financially years from now and you are settled in this land that i'm going to give you he says be careful that your hearts are likely if you're not careful your hearts are likely to become proud when your standard of living and when you've got comfort the comforts of thinking that you are well off and that material wealth has made you such that you don't really need me anymore you don't need to live by faith your hearts are going to become proud and forget that the Lord is the one who redeemed you from slavery, he says. It's no wonder the writer of Proverbs contrasted the rich man. Remember we read earlier in chapter 18 of Proverbs we talked about the rich man who imagined that there's a walled city, that his wealth would give him protection. It's interesting that the verse that precedes that is this. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The person of the Lord is the true source of security in this world and in the world to come. It is the righteous man who will run into that strong tower and truly find safety. I want us to read at this moment... As we ask the question are you a worshiper am i a worshiper of material wealth there's some real dangers there there's some real dangers because the danger is that in idolatry you say well what do you keep talking about this idolatry again i will quote a couple of things from a helpful book that i commend to you you might want to ask for it for christmas counterfeit gods by tim keller again it's been out there for quite a few years But it is so helpful in his dealing with these heart issues regarding the various gods of our culture and idols of our culture. He says a counterfeit God is anything that is so central, so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without even a second thought. You're so caught up in it. He says, if I have what an idol will say to our hearts is, if I have what I'm longing for, let's say money and material wealth, I'll feel my life has meaning, and then I'll know I have value, and then I'll feel significant and secure that's what it means to worship wealth as a god he also says if anything becomes more fundamental than god to our happiness to our meaning in life and identity that my friends is the essence of an idol that's in your heart and this is what can happen to us if we get caught up into the idea of what money can do for us i wanted to turn to at this point the warning that's found in first timothy chapter six if you could find your way there first timothy chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 again in a passage that tells us you're not going to be able to take anything out of this world you came in with nothing you're leaving nothing and so it's warning us about the issues of greed within our hearts and by the way did you know in colossians chapter 3 the scriptures say that greed is essentially amounts to idolatry that's what it says Here's what the warning here Paul gives to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6. Those who want to get rich, those who are caught up with material wealth as their idol of their heart, they fall into temptation and a trap or a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge them into ruin and destruction. He's warning them. Why is this? For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Having a passionate love for and strong urge that says, I'm going to do anything, whatever it takes to get what I want in this area of material wealth. He says that is going to lead you into some real obvious desires and what happens he says all sorts of evil by longing for it some have wandered away from the faith they have pierced themselves with many a sorrow don't you know that that goes on so widely as people take risks gamble their money away people who invest in ridiculous efforts to try to get rich quick and all these kind of things people who overspend and people who try to have... all It just leads them into all kinds of obvious bondage and destruction. You say, oh, I'm not a lover of money. What's he talking about? He's talking about people who are lovers of money. Here's a helpful comment again from Keller. He says, lovers of money are those who find themselves daydreaming or fantasizing about new ways to make money. Does Does that describe you? Or lovers of money are people who are fantasizing about new possessions to buy so you're not the person who's going to make the money you just want to spend the money that's what you think about and dream about or he says a lover of money is a person who is looking with jealousy on those who have more than they do would indicate that your heart is a lover of money Again, I say, it's interesting how easy it is for us to think, oh, this only applies to people who have a lot of wealth. Do you realize if you're a person caught up in anxiety and worry about money and think you don't have enough? In a sense, money is your God, what you're relying on, because you're not trusting in God. You're trusting in this, having and obtaining what you really think you need in order to truly be at peace. And so, what I'm trying to say here is that in all of our, this examination of our hearts, do you ever take some time during this time of year to sort of step back and say, Lord, you're the one who owns everything I have. Thank you for entrusting it to me. And thank you for promising me that you will provide me all that I need in Jesus Christ and not a bit more you're a God who is indeed you are the one who satisfies and becomes a treasure of my heart or do you view yourself and all the things that you've obtained over the years as a means of gaining sort of independence from God and you really don't need to rely on him you become self-reliant again it raises the question are you rich toward God Is Christ your greatest treasure? Has your heart found delight in the riches of Jesus Christ in the gospel? Or are you foolishly attempting to find security, to find your significance in the accumulation of material assets? You say, well, maybe it's not just assets. Maybe you're still pursuing the accumulation of good works to make you right with God. Or the accumulation of some sort of impressive religious resume that will somehow make a big and good impression on God. My friend, I want to make something very clear now what I'm trying to say here in this point. Some of you may have said, are you saying to me money is something that we shouldn't have? No, that'd be a false teacher. He'd say, no, you send me all your money and I'll pray for you. You know, you need money, then you send me all your money and I'll pray for you. And I mean, that, that's a false teacher. That's a false prophet. What I'm trying to say, my first point, is not that worship of God excludes wealth. What I'm trying to say is that the worship of God excludes the worship of wealth. Big, Big difference. I hope you caught that point. All right, I want to move forward now and look at the second point here this morning. And that is that, when you think about these magi who came and presented these gifts, as I said earlier, these gifts are not just token gifts. They are three expensive, valuable gifts. And I believe that the, in presenting such a gifts to, to Jesus, even as an infant, that they were trying to sort of illustrate an important principle, and that is this. The true worship of God is costly. The true worship of God is costly. You say, well, come, wait a minute, what's the evidence of that? Well, consider, for example, in the children of Israel. In Exodus 37, Exodus 38, uh, there's, informa- there's instruction given to them that God says, listen, I want you to collect from the people there, people free will offering, just Make it known that you can give whatever you choose to give, because what I'm going to do is we're going to take the resources of what's donated, we're going to make the various items for the portable worship center that you're going to have among you in your time of exodus and wandering in the wilderness, until such time as the temple is built. And so the people made donations so that they could build, for example, the lampstand, the table of showbread, the, the, uh, the, the basin, the altar of incense, and the mercy seat, those kind of things. And when they collected it all together, what did they total up? A ton of gold, four tons of silver, and three tons of bronze. Now, my little puny mind can't even comprehend those kinds of vast figures of wealth. But it begs the question why? Would they invest? And by the way, that was from the Egyptians, right? They got a lot of that from the Egyptians. God wore them out with all those different plagues. And they were like, oh, here, take this and get out of here. And so God gave them a bunch of wealth. And so the question is, why invest all of this wealth? Why invest the time? Why invest all the effort in constructing these articles of this portable worship center with all this valuable metals? And the point God's trying to make to his people is this very important spiritual axiom. If sinful people are to draw near to God, the holy God, mediation is required. There must be a mediator. And since people are unholy, God's holy wrath must be appeased. It must be satisfied. And so the articles in the tabernacle and later The symbols involved in the temple were done in such a way as to foreshadow the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, God's gift of salvation was, from God's point of view, a very expensive gift of salvation. It cost God tremendously to provide salvation for sinners like you and me. God himself supplied in the person of Jesus Christ the atoning sacrifice because Jesus was sent as the perfect, sinless, unblemished Lamb of God. And therefore, God himself paid a very costly price to satisfy his own holy demands. And since God, at such a high cost himself, provided the only access by which sinners can know God and can be found acceptable in His presence and can, therefore, enjoy God because of this offense of their sins has now been taken out of the way by Jesus, our substitute. We, too, can, therefore, know that there's worship that we offer to God must also be that which has worth. It must sort of have some personal cost. We don't just offer to God token token acknowledgments of his greatness and glory and grace again an example would be david king david in second samuel 24 is told by the prophet gad i am glad I don't have that name gad uh, so he's he speaks and says to david there's a, a very crisis going on there are people dying it's like a plague is going on there's tremendous loss of life and david is in a panic and he's Thinking, what in the world do we do? So Gad says, Listen, cry out on God and set up a little altar here and offer a sacrifice to God. Show that we are seeking Him by the reminder that we desperately need His grace and mercy. And so David seeks then to, uh, he's told that he's supposed to uh, uh, offer a sacrifice on a particular man's land uh, and do it right there. And so he goes to this particular landowner, and since it's David the king, Saying, listen, I want to uh, have this altar and I want to build that here on your piece of property, and here's the reason why. And, and so the guy says, well, listen, you're the king. You can have it for free. Here, take it. And David refuses the offer of this generous man, and he says, This, this is from 2 Samuel 24, verse 24. I will surely buy that land from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. That's interesting. Which cost me nothing. In other words, he says my worship that I'm offering, I want it to be something that is truly valuable that I'm offering to you. I don't want it to be somebody else's valuable gift. I want it to be something that shows I truly treasure God. And so the worship of God does involve sacrifice. It involves costly giving. But this costly giving is not just for the sake of saying, well, how disciplined are you and how much can you, you know, begrudgingly hand over and measure that amount and whatever and compare it with this person. No, what it's saying here, the gospel is, is implying and sort of strongly uh, portraying this change of heart regarding the idol of money and and wealth, that acceptable worship involving sacrifice is the overflow of a joy-filled heart, a thankful heart that loves to give, that loves to share, that loves to sacrifice in celebration of the grace of God in the gospel. You see, gospel transforms self-centered worshipers of money into generous, self-sacrificing worshipers of God. And one example of that, again, we're bouncing around today in Scripture, but I'm just trying to show illustrations of this. Look at Luke 18. Luke chapter 18. We are introduced in this text of Scripture to a despicable man, or at least that's the way he was viewed by the people of his society. And if you listed you know, the most hated man in that culture and society, This guy's name would always appear at the highest part on that list. Number one, because he was the chief, not just a, or or one among many, he was the chief tax collector in that area. Now, we don't understand how bad he is viewed by that culture, but let me tell you, he's the worst of the worst. He's an outcast. Nobody has anything to do with him because he's known as really an extortioner who is in cahoots with the uh, the Roman government uh, and therefore, he is oppressing his own people, his own Jewish people, but he's making a ton of money. He is loaded with riches because he has an unending source of income, and the Roman authorities will back him up and he can collect as much as he chooses to extract out of anybody on top of all the taxes that the Romans are requiring. So here's this guy named Zacchaeus, and his greedy heart is that. It has led him to, in a sense, give up all family loyalties, give up any kind of decency or respectfulness in his society, and he's only concerned with one thing, money and himself. That's his life. It defines him. He's obsessed with extracting as much money out of his fellow Jews as he can, and I think the reason why is perhaps... Because he is looking to gain prestige for himself. He's looking for power and, if you will, stature. Because why? He's a short man. He's looking up at everybody. Maybe he he grew up in life saying, I don't want to be the guy looking up at everybody. I want them looking up to me. I want power over these people. And I'm going to show it by attaining and gaining wealth. Here he is as the shortest man who realizes one day when Jesus is coming through town, he says, I'm realizing that my life is rather empty. All this wealth is not meeting the deepest longings of my heart because we're all made to be worshipers. You either worship money or something else, some other idol, or you worship God. And so on that day, he wants wants to see Jesus the issue there is he doesn't just want it. He's desperate to see Jesus. And guess what? As the shortest man, where do you need to be in order to see a person walking by in a parade? You need to be in the front. Nobody's going to give him any kind of courtesy to get to the front. Because they all despise him. So what does he do? In his desperation, his longing, his, his, his sense of earnestly wanting More in his life than what he currently has. Because he could get anything he wanted otherwise. He climbs a tree. Now I don't know about you, but I haven't climbed a tree in quite a long time. And that's good because the disaster would be, I'd be down on the ground pretty soon uh, if I continued to pursue it. And secondly, uh, it's not a pretty sight to see 60-some-year-old men up in a tree. And on this occasion, it was extremely, culturally speaking, it was extremely uh, humbling for Zacchaeus to climb a tree. It was, in a sense, he was receiving unto himself ridicule by his whole society. They're like, ha, look at this guy, he's climbing a tree. It's like, you don't do that. But he did it anyway. And shock of all shocks, Jesus walks by. Nothing is said of Zacchaeus as actually initiating. It's Jesus who initiates of all these religious people, all these wonderful people in the the parade route, if you will, or uh, lining the streets. They all present themselves as such wonderful people. And here's the most despicable, the most most dishonest, the most uh, egregiously corrupt person you can imagine. Jesus says, hey, you! Yes, you, Zacchaeus, come on down there. I'm going to go to your house today. I want to spend time with you. I want to enjoy a meal with you. I want to make friendship with you. It was shocking. Absolutely shocking. It indicates that Jesus, in calling him by name, chose the least virtuous person in the crowd for a personal relationship which is portraying to us again, that's grace. This is gospel grace at work. You see, God's salvation is by grace. It's not by moral achievement. It's not by performance. And so interestingly enough, the grace of Jesus Christ invaded Zacchaeus' life and changed things upside down From where he had been prior to that moment you say well what's the evidence of the grace of god changing his life well look what what his response was no longer did zacchaeus focus on himself and living a self-sufficient life and and extracting all his money his desire now was to offer costly worship to the lord who so marvelously showed him grace in the gospel and so he says listen god what I'm going to do, Jesus, is I'm going to give not just 10% of my money to the poor, which was a, a very generous but reasonable guideline. He says, I'm going to give half of what I have to the poor. How, how's that for showing that my heart is now has a new treasure? The new treasure is Jesus. No longer is it the money that I have. So he wants to, he wants to help the poor. And then he says, I want to make restitution. I have ripped off every person around here and, the, and I know that I've done it, and I've enriched myself doing it. And so he says, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to pay them back four times the value of what I ripped them off for. Again, exceeding any kind of guideline as what was expected or the norm. What's he saying here? When the grace of Christ changes our hearts, we're liberated from self-absorption. We find joy in the giving of costly gifts as an expression of our profound gratefulness to God in Christ. So the question comes, what does your giving reveal about your heart? Do you ever offer to God any kind of costly giving? Do you ever worship God with offerings that flow from a heart that is so contented and so thankful that it's just you can't contain yourself. Or are you a person that says, oh, well, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to measure it all out here. Oh, oh, uh, 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 I'm getting close to 10%, that's it. Or I won't give 2%, or I'm just going to do this, or I'll compare myself with what this person gives it. You know, I'm just going to try to come up with some sort of limited way which I'll meet that standard and boom, I'm done. The rest of it's mine. Remember what Jesus said when he observed the religious leaders who would go into the temple and they drop big handfuls of coins into these circular, uh, uh, trumpet-shaped, horn-shaped receptacles where you drop the coins and it goes, makes all this clanging sound, you know, goes down into the receptacle. Well, they made this big old amount of noise dropping those coins in there. Of course, these people are loaded. And here comes a woman by and she puts two little tiniest, pieces of metal which was the smallest of money they had that time they call them the widow's bites, put those in there and jesus says do you realize that this widow gave more than these other people whose offerings made all that clanging sound and ton of handful of coins he says she put in more than all of them combined why because she gave out they gave out of their surplus she gave out of her poverty her gift was sacrificial Her gift was from a heart that was saying, You are worth more to me, Lord, than the little money that I have. Their gifts were tokens given to impress other people. But her gift was an expression of how much she treasured God and trusted Him. So the question is, are you rich toward God? Do you know what it means to worship God by cheerful, giving johnny erickson tata has this helpful quote she said the extent we are generous toward others reflects what we think of god's generosity toward us and of course god wrote the book she says on generosity and he called that book jesus let's pray Our Father, we once again are humbled to realize that all of us have hearts that are so easily caught up in idols, and Lord, we just pray that you would help us today to have eyes to see by your Holy Spirit areas where our own hearts, perhaps, Father, are very much caught up in the worship of worldly wealth on some level. Maybe we don't have much wealth, but we're full of anxiety and worry about the future. Or maybe, Lord, we're just constantly thinking about making more money, making more money, making more money. Or we're perhaps thinking about how we want to spend our money, spend our money, spend our money. Lord, help us to see that you, as a loving God, warn us again and again, beware of these things. Don't make money your master. So help us, Father, to find Christ to be the greatest treasure. Help us to see him clearly as the one who was rich and who became poor, giving of himself, laying aside his glory, laying aside his position of highest honor and privilege, which were rightfully his. And he came to this earth, suffered, assumed the lowest position possible, even the shameful death on the cross, that we might become rich in his wealth, his spiritual wealth. Lord, we pray that the gospel would break us free from the tendency to live under the tyranny of the idol of material wealth and then father i pray that you would give us hearts that are changed by the gospel to be generous to be cheerfully giving to be able to manage the assets that you've entrusted to us in a way lord that conveys our heart's desire is to bless others and bless you with the same degree of generosity that you have blessed us in christ thank you father that jesus is the greatest treasure how thankful we are for him we pray in jesus name amen